This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Designed specifically for venture-backed startups, Brex is the perfect corporate card for fast-growing companies. Head to brex.com and sign up with the promo TFR to get waived card fees for life. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Samil Shah of Haystack is back again joining us today from Menlo Park. Samil is an investor in over 70 companies. He's the founder and GP of Haystack, and he's a venture partner at Lightspeed. In 2017, just four years after starting his own fund, he was named to the Midas Brink list by Forbes. He's an active blogger and has been very vocal since the crisis broke to help both startup founders and fund managers alike. Uh, Samil, I think this is the third time you've been on the show. Third time's a charm. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick, and good to reconnect. Yeah, so you've you've written a lot about adapting to the crisis, managing through it. Um, I'd love to dive into some of those points, but uh, before we do so, I, I believe last time you were on was like November of 2017 mm. uh, time frame. Can you give me a quick update on uh, <laughs> yourself and Haystack since then? Yeah, I think uh, since then we've uh, raised another fund. We opened that fund for business in September of 2019. It was a it's a $50 million fund, five zero, and it's, it was mostly institutional. So that, that felt like a really big breakthrough. Um, and it feels like the right size in terms of ownerships and, you know, things I wanted to do. Um, and so, yeah, we're just at the beginning of investing that. And so it feels like, you know, not that I would prefer today's environment over uh, yesterday's environment, but it fe- I feel very fortunate that we have so much capital and, and sort of the long-term partnerships now to invest. So that's the big update. Can you give us a sense for the number of LPs that are in that fund? Uh, I mean, I have a lot of CEOs in there, but like the main institutional LPs, it's about eight, you know? Got it. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's, let's start there. So how have you sure. adapted sort of messaging communication with the LPs and how, what have you heard from them since, you know, or over the past three weeks? Yeah, well, I would, what I would say here to be clear is like, I've been talking to a lot of LPs, both that are mine, but also that are not mine. And so I think um, in, in the same way that this uh, public health and economic and sort of looming mental social isolation crisis will affect everyone in different ways. I think that's the same for LPs. So, you know, I talked to an LP where it's a multifamily, sorry, it's a single family office, quite large, quite institutional, and they don't have an operating business to manage. So it's just the family office. And, you know, there's a group that has a hedge fund. There's a group that has a real estate fund. There's a group that does publics. There's a group that does PE. And so because of the lack of an operating business and the diversification built in, they're as a buyer of equity, they're very excited about this time. You know, they want to put more capital to work because they view the prices are going to be going down considerably. On the other hand, if you think about any uh, sort of endowment or foundation out there that a lot of GPs would 
um, love to have on their own investor base in their own investor base. You know, think of a random nonprofit that maybe needs to supply emergency funds to one of their programs or um, may not be able to fundraise via events like they used to. Or think about a university where they've had to send the students home, they're considering tuition reimbursements, they're laying off staff or furloughing staff, and then they may also manage funds for the medical school um, or the scientific departments that are on the front lines of this. So it's like, I think it's pretty nuts when you think about all, all of these things put together and if someone's in the crosshairs of that. Um, so that's kind of what I'm hearing. It just depends on the strategy. I think fund of funds who have to raise their own funds, um, it's going to be a tighter fight for those funds, right? It already was super tight before the year started. Um, so that's kind of what I'm hearing. Do you think capital call defaults will be a real issue this year or next? Again, I think it depends on who, who your LPs are. If your LPs are individuals, they might have lost 10 to 40% of their net worth in the last month. So they may do it out of conservation, out of a desire for conservation, or they may do it because they literally can't. Um, I think institutionals will be more, um, you know, have larger pools of capital, but it, it really depends on who your LPs are and what their exposure is. But, you know, yeah, I've been telling friends who have funds to like pick three friends who are managers. One of them will do incredibly well in this environment. One of them will have defaults in their capital calls and one of them won't be able to raise the next fund. You know? Yeah. It, it's, it's going to be like that. What, what would your guidance be to emerging managers that do have to raise, you know, next quarter or, or the following? Um, I think it comes down to relationships to start. So if you have relationships with people seeing, you know, telling a story about how the deal environment maybe is changing and it's an opportunity to put capital to work and having a point of view of how to put that capital to work. I think another angle could be, um, you know, pushing things out. So maybe someone wants to raise a fund of excise. And maybe they say, okay, well, I'll raise a third of X or a half of X and fight with the army that I have right now mm-hmm. and live, live to fight another day. Um, I think, you know, converting temporarily to some SPVs, if you have access to capital and just, you know, there's some advantages to doing that too. Um, but, you know, for me, like when I started and you were a little bit like this too, um, it was hard to raise a million dollars and for a small fund in 2012 and 2013 when I did it. And now people were so used to it. They were just raising 15, 30 out of the gate because they, they needed it for whatever personal expenses they had or things like that. Yep. Um, but no one really owes anybody that. And so I think we're going to go back to that um, time frame a little bit where, okay, if you really want to do it, you've got to have a side hustle or maybe five side hustles. And you do this and you kind of build your way up there. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, our, our fund one was six, six million. And we, we sidecar with SPVs about an equivalent check on, on the sidecars uh, to our initial check. So it's, it's kind of a $6 million fund that functions a, a little bit more like 12. Right. Um, but we were, we were going to go out later this year for fund two 
And yeah. with existing LPs only, I had interest in like the 20 to 30 verbals. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, I'm just, I mean, that would have been a first close. So, you know, we were aiming higher than that for the second close, but my confidence in that has gone way down. And that's, well, see, not- I think, I think like, you know, one, I don't think it's worth making any big, big decisions right now because more information is going to come out. So I would just say like, you know, even on a human level, is it appropriate to go ask for money from people you don't know right now? Um, you could argue it's not really appropriate, like just on a human level. Yeah. Right. I think number two is that like for people that, you know, it's a time to like either give them a call or email them about what you're doing mm-hmm. as a manager, um, you know, to, to adjust to the new environment, both for portfolio, your point of view. And then like, I think telling the story, this isn't for you or this is just for anybody telling the story of how, the pricing environment may change one yep, and two that like technology is now what drives the economy worldwide. That's not going to change. And that, you know, here are the opportunities to go do that. Um, I think people will see that over time because there wasn't anything structurally wrong with our economy. Not that it was perfect, but I do, I do think like there will be quarters and quarters of like down uh, down activity and then it will take a year or two to recover from it and yep. a, a lot of stimulus. And so it'll just take time, but I still think like people can go try to raise capital. Maybe the targets are a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, the fundamentals I think are still sound um, yeah. and the value is going to be good for the foreseeable future. But a lot of that liquidity, you know, a lot of people were betting with house money. Let's be honest, right? There was there was just a lot of uh, alpha in the market, and people were using the publics as their cash machine and investing across different asset classes. But a part of that was their allocation to venture. I mean, I saw it myself. I saw a lot of people that had made so much from the bull run that we were on that they were allocating quite a bit to uh, not just venture, but a lot of alternatives and and other asset classes. Yeah, that happens all the time. I think, um, you know, if someone's going in and out of asset classes like that, they're probably not a great LP to target. I mean, again, when you're starting, you don't get the benefit of choosing. But ultimately, like people play in and out like that, you can't really time venture markets and people are going to start companies. Um, Like I'm sure you've been talking to people starting companies now or raising their first rounds of capital now. So that'll that'll always happen. and like, of course, the pricing is going to adjust, like the valuations are going to, you know, completely adjust. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a time to make those long-term bets. I think as a manager too, like being really, really early, you have to, you have to show the ability to get your companies funded after because it really takes like 10 or 20 million. I mean, let's say five to 10 million. To, to really get a shot to build a technology company. Yep. Min- minimum. So a small fund isn't going to supply all that. Um, that's the other thing, right? Is like there'll be more of a premium on that. How much do you think valuations adjust? And and how do you think uh, investment dollar volume adjusts in 2020? 
Investment dollar, I mean, I, I don't know the numbers. I mean, it seems like VCs have a lot of dry powder, but they're going to be a lot slower. So the number is obviously going to be significantly lower than it would have been. Um, I still think a lot of them have a shopping list of things they want to buy <laughs> and have access to. Yep. So, so I think that money will still be deployed. I, I still think at every stage there are like capital balances and imbalances. So like you could say that for the next year or so, there's still an imbalance of supply of seed cash and angel cash to relative to the startups versus a series A capital is probably much more constrained. Mm-hmm. But I think there'll be like two types of rounds and, and it's the same today. It's just the pricing will be more stark. There's someone who's really good who a few people want to work with and bid on working with them that they'll have a better pricing advantage, especially if things are working. If other people are taking much more of a risk and things are unknown, I think you could see in rounds like 30% dilution, give or take, if not more. Um, and, you know, in a previous era, a Series A by a top-tier firm would have been, you know, five on 11 pre or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like maybe even lower. Um, and so people just haven't really gotten, you know, it'll take a while if that's going to happen, it'll take a little while for that to happen, but it'll be a shock for people. Yeah. I'm seeing pricing come down already, especially what you, what A and B. I've seen, I've only seen a handful of term sheets, uh, and I'm seeing on the order of about 20% reduction from where we were at in February. Okay. Which doesn't feel that significant. I mean, Chris Duvos was just on the program and he was arguing for, you know, 40 plus percent discounts. Uh, I don't know that we're going to see that, but uh, I don't have a crystal ball. So we'll find out. Yep. We'll find out. I mean, again, I think it's, uh, it's dependent upon who, you know, how much demand there is for that specific equity. Um, you know, because it just takes two to tango. If two firms really want to work with somebody, right? Right. That's all. That's all you need. So, yep. I think it's the cases where the investors taking a lot of the risk um, and sticking their neck out there. I think those will be, you know, you know, it'll be harder. I mean, I also think like a lot of entrepreneurs you and I have met probably are very careful, smartly about dilution when they start, and they may not start if the dilution is worse. And so, I think you'll see some people opt out of doing startups because they'll say, well, I can make more money doing this and I don't want to give up this amount of my company. And there'll be other people who will just say, this is the only thing I want to do. You know, the thought of doing something else is worse. So let's go. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll see. Yep. So, you know, I know you've done a a number of calls uh, similar to myself and probably some others, but um, you have a variety of pretty high profile mentors that, you know, you've been learning from and working with for many years. Uh, you know, what are you hearing from, from those sort of veteran investors right now? I mean, there's a lot like any particular area. Um, I was going to leave it to you. I mean, maybe what are the major insights from them based on previous crises that you know, um, they're talking about now? I personally don't listen to anything related to previous crises because they seem to pale in comparison. I think the one thing that I've heard that makes sense to me logically is that I was in investing during this time. I mean, I just graduated college, but the the impact of the dot-com bubble on the technology and startup world was for years. It was a, it was a multi-year thing. And people have told me who have invested 
during that cycle as well, that they believe this will also be more like that, where it will be a number of years um, people will this this uh, these pan sort of pandemics running in parallel will alter the startup ecosystem for a few years. Great. <laughs> oh, it's I mean it's tough. It's it's tough to hear that, but I think you know the reality is this cuts so deep across so many sectors, and the tail of this could just be so long. It's really, I mean, even if they do find, um, you know, vaccine or treatments here in the next quarter or two, there's some damage that's been done that in some cases is irreversible, you know, to both people and to businesses. Yeah, I think um, we don't, March feels like an appetizer for the main event and, um, you know, it's not going to be a pretty main event. So it's a... you know, I think a lot of us haven't really digested what the reality is going to be of like this high unemployment. You know, when people look at the markets and like, oh, market seems to stabilize. I'm like, okay, well, you know, the jobless claims are just, is just unheard of. So I'm more of a worrier about that stuff, both as an investor, but also just as a citizen. I'm just, you know, I'm more bearish about the prospects that that creates. Um, I do think there are opportunities created by it, but there are more obstacles and areas of concern. Well, and I know you, you've got a background as a, as a chef, so I'm sure you know a number of people in the service industry that it's, it's affected as well. Um, you know, to me, a lot of curiosity, how or what actions rather have you taken at Haystack to adjust maybe your strategy or your investment approach, if any? Yeah, I think in terms of approach, what we've done is, you know, we've created a, we've created like a zoom process with some speed bumps to evaluate new investments. So um, I would say we're evaluating fewer, but still evaluating them and like raising the bar even higher. Um, And then we're communicating that process very clearly with the founders so that they, understand why we're taking a little bit of extra time and when we would get back to them with an answer. Um, In terms of strategy, what we're doing internally, like I have two colleagues on my investment team that work with me who are, who are young and recently out of college, but super bright uh, Ian Hathaway and Ashay Songvi. And so we've been having weekly calls just about what do we think will happen? Ian's been focusing on the consumer side consumer behaviors and Ashe has been focused on um, more enterprise B2B. And we're, we've been like sending clips of articles and then things that we've written weekly to each other. And we're going to try to produce like an internal document and memo. And as well as like a screening process we're going to adapt our screening filter, you know, to like adjust to a kind of COVID or pandemic world. So it's sort of in process right now, but that's what we're, focusing on. Can you give us some inkling of what those adjustments might look like or, you know, Uh, how you're thinking about that? I just don't know. Yeah. And I mean, the only thing we've thought about is from the moment a founder, founder doesn't meet me first, but if it graduates to the level where I meet the founder over zoom, then we would, and we want to go deeper. We sort of warn the founder that we're probably going to take 
extra time to do referencing because we can't sit in front of the person. Um, and that we'd probably want to do one zoom. That's like kind of more social in nature, just so that there's some in like social interaction, you know? Um, so I think, I think we'll do an investment in, in, uh, in Q2 at some point. I just don't know when and what it will look like and in terms of the strategy. We're taking an internal week next week. So like I kind of decreed that we're only working on internal projects next week to kind of reset. And so we're not allowed to talk to external partners or external founders or anything like that. Um, and then sort of regroup from there. It's it's a unique challenge, right? Because I, I don't think I've made an investment yet where I didn't have a social engagement with the founder. That could be a casual coffee, that could be a cocktail, that could be dinner, um, yeah. but something that felt not like diligence, but just felt like, who are you as a person? And here's who I am. And let's just relax. And there's so much, I, th- I think that happens in an interaction like that to get the parties comfortable with each other or, or not. And we've lost that, right? So how do you think the value of face-to-face interaction is going to impact sort of this VC founder relationship and diligence? Um, I think what's, well, one is I think we'll all be forced to adapt. I think the manner in which we're introduced will will become more important. The, the level of structured communication that the founder can convey over a slide deck uh, will be more critical. The reporting that they do or how they manage metrics, I, I just think the bar will go higher because people will still want to take risk, but they'll they'll look for new cues on how to de-risk it, um, how, to, how to de-risk those things. You know, while we're talking about, still talking about managing a fund, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on sort of triaging portfolio at this point and prioritizing reserves? Um, yeah, most of us seed investors don't have that many reserves. And I think it, you know, so there's a risk there of like washout. I mean, I think, um, I think if a seed investor has a core position, you know, going to talk to those people about how things stand is important, but a lot of seed investors won't have ball control. You know, that's the, that's the reality. What do you mean by that? I just mean that there could be a lot of recaps on rounds and yeah. seed investors could get washed out. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. I mean, we'll see how bad it gets, but that happens in every cycle. I mean, is there a shift though, as you think about, I don't know what your reserve strategy is, but as you think about reserves that are allocated to extending companies versus reserves that are just, uh, you know, for pro ratas doubling down, tripling down on winners. Yeah. I haven't thought through this that much. I mean, it's a good question. I think one, one argument that was made to me that I think is interesting and I hadn't thought about before is, if the follow-on rounds to hold your ownership are going to be lower, then you might be able to take more shots on goal, right? You don't need as many reserves. Um, but, you know, I've been, I've been reserving one-to-one. Obviously, I'm not going to allocate those reserves one-to-one, um, yep. but as, a, as an insurance. So yep. that's kind of how we've been operating. Got it. So 
this current fund, 25 will go into new investments, 25 will be reserved. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Um, what do you think about funds that are low on dry powder potentially reopening? Oh, yeah. That's actually another thing, too. I do think funds will, will reopen because if you're an LP and you can get into the fund and you can already look in the underlying, it's not a blind pool anymore, you know? Yeah. The only issue is, is that the current LPs will have to okay it. And that's probably easier for the less institutional, smaller funds to do and harder for more professional institutional funds to do. Right. Because a lot of those professional institutions will block it. Um, they'd either want to do it themselves if they thought it was a good opportunity. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend. And all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co slash TFR for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Or they wouldn't want someone to free ride mm-hmm. into their portfolio. So, I mean, I'm speaking theoretically. I don't really have experience here, but that's what the theory would tell me. How long do you think is a comfortable period for completing a fundraise, right? A VC fund manager raising a fund. Because I, I, well, I think the average, I think the stats I saw, the average is often 18 months, which feels long to me, but... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know Joe Lonsdale's first fund took him 18 months, and it was like one of the best performing funds ever. So I don't really know. I think the the best thing I've heard... The best thing I've heard on this is like from Mike Maples, more more about turning the question around on the on the investor and saying, "How long do you want to spend doing it?" You know, because at a certain point, it doesn't make sense to keep going. Um, the other thing I would say is that like it's so hard to time how long your fundraise is because like ideally you're building up to a point where you enter the market. Do you count that time? You know, <laughs> like you're filling your data room, you're getting right. references. The pre-raise, yeah. It's like a never-ending thing. Um, so, yeah, I don't I don't know. I think, like, you know, there are a lot of funds out there now. So I think the question is, if you keep 
going around trying to do it, how are you even going to support yourself during that process? Right. Right. Well, hopefully you have a fund under management and hopefully that helps. So talking about the companies a little bit, uh, what has been your guidance to companies so far that you're working with, you know, with regards to like changing business model, changing go to market? I know that it's, it's probably customized and specific for every company, but can you give us some thoughts on that? What I basically said is like, if you're an early stage pre-series A company and you have less than 12 months of runway, you either have to figure out how to get 12 months of runway or consider likely selling the company unless you can live off monetization uh, and not every early stage company can. Um, The guidance at Seed has been sort of holding 12 to 24 months of runway. So that largely means like thinking through the rent if there's an office and thinking through salaries if the team has slightly overhired. So nothing, you know, earth shattering in terms of advice here. But the the general thing is like 12, 18, 24. You want to have more than 12, ideally 18, and in a best case scenario, 24. And do you think that that's mostly due to the fact that VCs are slowing down or do you think the bar is also going to significantly increase when it comes to traction metrics? Um, I think it's too early to tell. Like my view is that in Q2, people will still be digesting this and won't see all the numbers. And then you'll see a lot of the carnage on the balance sheet and public earnings and like missed forecasts in Q2. And so that in Q3, the prices will continue to get low in the private markets. Um, that's that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Got it. You know, I, I saw that you guys were putting together a or crowdsourcing a list of startups that have changed their business model to help fight COVID-19. Yeah. Um, can you highlight some of the interesting ones on that list so far? Oh, boy. Let me call it up here. I don't think I have it immediately set. Let me see. Um, I know one of our company, uh, one of our companies um, called Meter in Boston is converting everything to doing, um, converting their like 3D printing now to creating ventilators off a open source project from MIT. Um, Let's see here. I mean, there's obviously the larger companies like LVMH doing hand sanitizer and Anheuser-Busch doing sanitizer and then the the auto companies doing the ventilators. I'm looking for like any interesting startups here. I guess Flexport, right? They did, they did some donation stuff and shipping, shipping masks around. Although I don't think they like completely reoriented around a desktop metal, obviously Um, carbon 3d. So there, I'm sure there are more, but we didn't catch, you know, we didn't catch all of them. Of course. What do you think happens to these, uh, large late stage well-funded companies that have crazy exposure to the crisis you know because they're serving uh you know their model or their their markets are just exposed can you give me me an example like bird oh yeah you know any of the mobility companies well i think those were in trouble before this honestly and this pandemic has acted as an accelerant in some cases, it's accelerated Zoom from 10 to 200 million DAUs. Yep. 
and Crazy. it's act it's acted as an accelerant that bird was and lime were already struggling and now they're like really struggling you know yeah um that's kind of how i view it is like it's accentuating those things like zoom was growing now it's really growing you know um but obviously people are not going out uh they're not going to do that for a while and no one knows the effects of the social distancing here you know um I, you can see it in uber and lyft as well you know there's just no no one ever thought this could come here right well, yeah. No. I mean, Lyft is a great example, right? Aren't they worth like right now? They're worth right around five billion. Yet they've got two million ish in cash. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the issue. I was I was surprised by that too. Just you know how much cash they're spending per month, and they're not super profitable businesses with margins. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know what what the what the future is going to hold for some of these companies. It's sort of scary to think about. Well, any any other advice or thoughts for for the audience, whether it be founders or investors trying to manage through this? Um, I think for for investor, like sort of people managing smaller funds or you know, sorry, smaller funds or working on larger funds. I don't know if I have any great advice other than you know, it's we're we're put in business to really understand the venture business model, but also to act as a sort of some sort of safety net or support net for the founders that we back. And um, luckily at seed, we're not the only ones, but in the cases where we've taken lead positions or have a lot of money at work in those cases, like we're going to have to parachute into some situations, maybe more so than we would have otherwise. Um, And I think for founders is coming to terms with the randomness of this, like, I think some people who have really good companies are just going to get walloped, you know, through no fault of their own. Yeah. And um, it's not really fair, but hopefully, you know, the, the people who get negatively impacted, I'm not even talking about the public health side of this because I'm sure that will happen too, but just like get impacted in terms of their business or have to like shut things down. Like my hope is that, the silver lining there is like the, the wound is deep enough where someone wants to get back on the horse in a couple of years and solve the new problems that have been created in the world, you know? Yep. Um, they will be there. That, that's the opportunity, right? Yeah. So lots of folks are saying this is like a one to two quarter sort of hit. What What's your over under on it? Uh, I'd say like at least a year of, bad economic news, probably a ton of stimulus and probably one to two years after that of like slower recovery. So this will make 2008 for those who live that like feel like just a blip. Well, hopefully they get the affiliation clause eliminated and the PPP and EIDL programs can actually help some of the venture backed startups that are creating the technology of the future. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, I think, um, you know, who's going to build the Uber of fever clinics, right? <laughs> yeah. Who's going to, who's going to build the Facebook of pandemic surveillance. Um, and you know, it's, uh, I haven't even digested all of this yet. I think I'm trying to every day, like you are probably, 
I was talking with Howard Linton yesterday who we were talking about public stocks and he was saying that, you know, the beauty of his public stock persona is that you can go in and out of a company with whatever mood you strikes you versus obviously when you're betting on founders and early stage companies, you're, you're with them for a long time. And he just said, I woke up and Disney's business model isn't fit for this new world. And I sold my stock and I want to buy a Peloton, you know? <laughs> and <laughs> I think in a way that's, it's kind of crass. Um, but it's also Howard's being really like, he's making a great point, which is we all have to kind of rewire and re underwrite, you know, to the things that, uh, we believe in now because the old, the old way of thinking about things just doesn't work. It's a new environment. Everything has changed. I mean, just, just my wife was telling me today, she works in, in the mental health world. Oh yeah. What does she do? She's middle management, but it's for an agency. So it's an agency that serves, you know, a broad based of, of, of public, um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. people. And it's one of the largest agencies in Illinois, but, um, they were having a chat about how to get their clients on telehealth. Everyone moved over to telehealth from these in-person uh, clinical sessions. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to have them sign a waiver, right? And the way that they traditionally did that when telehealth was a very small part of their business is they would mail this waiver to the client, snail mail. The client would sign it and mail it back, right? Because this population does not have fax machines. And my wife's comment <laughs> to senior management was, you know, well, I, I'm sure you've considered DocuSign and there's probably some reasons why it, why it's not the best fit, but should we take another look at that? And the response she got is, what, what is DocuSign? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's amazing how, well, it's amazing on one hand how, you know, some industries just have not embraced tech. <sighs> But um, on the other hand, you know, thank God there are tech solutions that exist that can help mitigate uh, some of the challenges. Totally. Um, Yeah. And I think going back to this accelerant comment, right? Like things, you know, people are resistant to change. Your great uncle doesn't want to Zoom because he thinks it's dumb or my great uncle doesn't want to do DocuSign because he likes to send them in a FedEx, you know, envelope. Yeah. Well, now you don't have a choice. And so this thing has stripped away and and pushed aside the sort of human tendency to resist certain things and given license to the people who can accelerate that change. Um, And, you know, people's priorities have shifted is like, okay, well, if you don't use DocuSign, you sign less contracts and you get paid less. So you choose, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and so we all know some. We all know somebody like that who, you know, needs to be been, forced into change. Yeah, needs to be forced into change. And so that is a silver lining of this. I mean, again, the cost of the silver lining is pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, I think I would rather not have it be that way, but it's where we are. I mean. Uh, by the way, in Chicago, like, uh, is, is it like a hotspot area right now? I've been trying to limit my intake of news because it's just depressing. Um, but I'd just be curious, like, how are things out there for you? I think uh, from what I've heard on the numbers, I think that it's fairly controlled. Um, so Governor oh, 
right? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's still grow- growing, but in terms of the curves, I think we're yeah we're in a good spot. The governor uh, Pritzker, who's actually been on the program before, he was one of the early governors to put in uh, you know a quarantine. And um, um, oh, that's right, he did that pretty publicly and early. Yes. Yes, shelter at home and all that, and he extend. He just recently extended it throughout the month of April, so to a reasonable degree, it looks like we're in control. That being said, you know, I, I do see more people out than I would expect to see out, but most of them are just walking. I mean, people need to at least walk and get yeah. some sunshine. So it's yeah. not like people are congregating in large groups. Thank God. Okay. Well. Um Take care of your wife and your kid and your <laughs> you kid. You as well. And, and uh, yeah, man, cook a lot. There we go. All right. All well, right, he man. is Samil Shaw. Thank you so much, Samil, for making okay. the time. Um, Good to talk to you. Yeah, best of luck with everything. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.